If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Every parent in here knows the reality of giving the same instructions to their children over and over and over again. By the time you've been raising kids five to ten years, as parents, you often get to the place where you think about recording your voice and begin to play over the loudspeaker instead of repeating yourself. Things like, hit the play button, clean your room, don't forget to brush your teeth, buckle your seatbelt, stop hitting your brother, do your homework, sit still. But at some point in your parenting journeys, we all come to that humble place, don't we? We look in the mirror and we realize that our parents did the same for us when we were children growing up. The same frustration, the same repetition, the same endless cycle of instructions and warning. But this Groundhog Day feeling that parents often experience in having to repeat themselves over and over and over again isn't really something new to the human race. Giving instructions and then having to make a choice whether to follow those instructions have been ingrained in our human DNA from the very beginning. In fact, in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God had instructed the first man and gave him a provision to enjoy all of God's blessings, but also one prohibition, one instruction not to obey. In other words, there would be blessings for obedience and judgment or consequences for disobedience. We read in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, did Adam obey? Did he listen to God? Well, we know from Genesis chapter 3, the cunning serpent deceived the woman and the man, and the first couple together listened to a voice that contradicted the voice of God. Instead of enjoying the sweet benefits of unhindered fellowship with their creator and experiencing the fullness of his goodness and righteous pleasures, man received the just consequences of his rebellion towards his holy creator. Shame. Regret. Fear. Loneliness. Frustration. And ultimately, death. You see, all of us in here have eaten some of the bad fruits of the fall, haven't we? Maybe you showed up here this morning to this worship gathering and you've come in here hopeless. Your whole week has been characterized by those words that I've mentioned here. And you're looking for hope. 
you're, you're looking for some kind of way out, a, a, a promise of somehow, some way, things will get better. Well, if that's you, you're in good company because you are in a room full of people who experience the fall in the same way. But you and I need to understand something this morning. Listening is more than acknowledging that your eardrum is reacting to the sound waves from this room. You see, according to Scripture, the condition of our hearts is interconnected with what or who we listen to. Who you and I listen to may actually reveal who the captain is steering the ship of your life. You know, sometimes we call people who don't listen well, difficult, strong-willed, stubborn. And for some people, being stubborn is actually considered a mark of successful independence. It's a prideful badge you wear. Maybe your spouse walks around the house taking pride that they are, well, stubborn. They let no one give them a no for an answer. They let no one stand in their way. And and in some circles, being stubborn is actually praised. But friends, when God, God Almighty, God of heaven and earth, God who gives us our next breath, God who blesses and God who judges, this God, the only God, the God of Holy Scripture, when he speaks, how do we respond? If we choose not to listen to him, are there bad consequences to follow? Does God promise not to repeat himself Or does he promise to repeat himself, giving us limitless chances to repent and trust him? Well, weighty questions like these need trustworthy answers. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 81. Psalm 81. This morning we're going to be reading a psalm that addresses both the joyful privilege we have in worshiping God, but also the serious responsibility we have in how we respond to God's word. And wherever you're at in life this morning, regardless if you are an active churchgoer or you are brand new to the Christian faith, my hope for you is that you will leave here listening to the God of the Bible. Psalm 81. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. 
I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Mariba. Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the word of God. If you're taking notes, I have two main points for us to consider in light of this psalm. Point number one, celebrate with joy in the God of your salvation. Celebrate with joy in the God of your salvation. That's verses one to seven. And point number two, listen by faith to the God of your salvation. Listen by faith to the God of your salvation. That's verses 8 to 16. Now you'll notice, drop down if you're looking at your screen or your Bibles, you'll notice at the heading of the psalm that this psalm has made reference to the choir master, or your translation might say the chief musician. Uh, This is in reference to one of uh, the worship leaders, much like a choir director we might understand today, in the nation of Israel. And they would gather together among the people of God to worship God through song, through offerings and sacrifices. And it says there in the heading that this was referring to either the choir master himself or those related to him. It reads right there of Asaph. So Asaph, or some of his descendants, as you may recall, served under King David and the other kings of Israel. Uh, Asaph, if you open up the Psalter to all 150 Psalms, Asaph is mentioned in about 12 of them. Psalm 50, and then Psalms 73 to 83. And you'll also notice right there in the heading, it says to the Giddeth. It's not entirely clear what that is. It might possibly be a musical instrument that was used or made in the town of Gath and Philistia. We're not really sure. Either way, this psalm has a mixture of both wisdom literature in it and some prophetic nature to it. 
Uh, Much like the book of Proverbs, that really depicts life in one of two ways. Fear God and receive the benefits of doing so. Or not fear God and suffer the consequences. Well, much like Psalm 1 that we read read earlier today about what the blessed man or the blessed woman does when they delight in God's law and the wicked who don't, this psalm begins the same way. Fear God, obey his commands. Don't fear God, don't listen to his commands. Both choices have consequences. But there's also a prophetic element to it. If you read the psalm earlier this week in preparing for today, you'll notice in verse 5 a a very ambiguous phrase. I hear a language I had not known. As you're studying this text, you might have to ask yourself, who on earth is it referring to? It seems kind of out of place. I mean, some suggest that it's the nation of Israel speaking of the Egyptian language. They didn't understand their language. They did not know it. While others suggest that it's the Lord's way of expressing his intimate relationship with Israel and not the Egyptians. He did not know them in a personal way. Israel was his covenant people. That's why in Psalm 81, you see these references to the God of Jacob and Joseph, my people, etc. and so forth. Those are all ways that God is referring to his special people. And I think the latter is probably true. It seems to flow better. But regardless, it doesn't change the interpretation of the psalm. In verses 1 to 5, the nation of Israel under the psalmist authorship is responding in worship to God by expressing what God has done for them in the past. And then in verses 6 to 16, God begins to speak in the first person. Did you notice the pronoun I? Look down with me. Ten times. I is mentioned in verses 6 to 16. In other words, God is echoing the same thing over and over again to his chosen people. What God has done for them in the past should influence them how they respond to him in the present. Contextually, this psalm was used during one of Israel's annual feast days. You can see that clearly in verse 3 where the psalmist charges the musicians to blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon. Did you see that last phrase? On our feast day. As a way of setting apart the nation of Israel from the pagan nations around them, God had ordained that his covenant people assemble together for various national feasts. These feasts, some of you might know your Old Testament well, about seven of them included things like the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes called the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Three times a year, God required that all the males in Israel would make a journey to attend and present whatever blessings God had given them that year, particularly agricultural blessings, in order to observe these feasts on behalf of their families. We read in Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 to 17, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, 
and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Now you'll notice the reference in verse 3 gives us a clue of which feasts he might be referring to. Right there in verse 3, he mentions blowing the trumpet, the new, and the full moons. This is most likely the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. These feasts would have been the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Booths. These would have began on day one and inaugurated all the way through day 21 of that month. And it took place in the fall. And I didn't plan this, but quite literally, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths that's being observed by Orthodox Jews around the world is actually the first week of October this year. So it is around this time, this psalm will be read or referred to even amongst Jews who don't yet know the Messiah that we love. If this is the Feast of Booths, this would have included one of the most festive feasts of the nation of Israel. Aside from two days that served as kind of bookend Sabbaths where they would rest and cease from work, in between, it was seven days of feasting. Imagine, kids, if you had Thanksgiving and Christmas for seven full days. Or adults, maybe for you, if that excites you in some way. Think of gifts. Think of food. Think of no jobs to go to for seven days celebrating with people you love. Well, if you're here today and you're new to the Christian faith, here's what I want you to understand this morning. The God we talk about is worth celebrating. He is worthy. He is worthy to take what he has given us and use them however he desires at his disposal. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our allegiance. And he is worthy of our deepest longings. In fact, the God we serve gets great glory when we are most satisfied in him. That's why the first three verses in Psalm 81 are all about this type of satisfaction. Look again with me, and starting in verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. Did you see that? The people of God are organizing their life around an annual calendar to celebrate their God. They're singing. They're shouting. They're raising a song. They're playing instruments. These are all ways that they would express their thanksgiving to God. Now, during these festivals, like the Feast of Booths, they didn't look at God like some good luck charm, like some rabbit's foot you uh, rub before an exam at school or before an interview you're about to go into. And they didn't recite cold, meaningless prayers as if God just wants us to check off the box once a year and gain his attention. No, the God they worshipped and the God we worship is a God worth worshiping because he's the God who can do the humanly impossible. 
Did you notice in verse 1 what they say about God? What attribute they highlight? Look at verse 1. Sing aloud to God our, what is it? Strength. They were instructed and encouraged to worship God as the very power source of their life. Everything they had, everything they were, everything they would need to face life's challenges and their greatest enemies, they had at their disposal. God was for them. And if you are in Christ this morning, God is for you. Who can be against you? No doubt the reference to God as their strength would have been the proclamation, their boasting of God's power to raise up and elevate and then destroy the king of the world's mightiest nation, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And no doubt this reference to God as their strength would have been referencing their confidence in God because of his ability to send ten plagues over the Egyptian army. God's ability to deliver hundreds and thousands of Israelites from harsh and inhumane slavery, and God's ability to lead them effortlessly through the Red Sea, and God's ability to provide for them for 40 years with bread, with water, even quail, in very unlikely and mysterious ways. How has God been your strength lately? What trials has the arms of our everlasting God sustained you through that can bring him glory this morning? What temptations has he given you a way of escape so that you can endure them and not fall prey to sin in your life? What hardships has he brought you through like he did Israel through the Red Sea and made you stronger as a result of going through them with him? Take time, beloved. Do not let this go in one ear and bounce off. Take time to think about how God has been your strength and praise him. May meditating on that strengthen your prayer life, strengthen your praise to him. And I can promise you, the longer you walk with this God, the more you will treasure up all the times that when he brings you at your lowest, his power and his grace becomes most sufficient. Well, for Israel, some of the feasts were a special time each year to remember this great deliverance out of Egypt. But I don't want you to miss something very important about these feast days. In verses 4 and 5, we see that these feasts were to be kept not as suggestions to consider. Kind of like a birthday invitation you got in your email that says, RSVP, well, you know, maybe. I'm not sure. I may get around to it. No, these feasts were to be kept as sacred convocations or sacred congregations that they were to prioritize in their life. These were divinely ordained assemblies, 
national feasts commanded by God, not suggested, commanded by God to be set apart each year among his people. Now, I want you to notice the language. Notice the language in verses 4 and 5 when he talks about these feasts. Verse 4, for it is a statute for Israel. Verse 4, a rule of the God of Jacob. Verse 5, he made it a decree in Joseph. Here we see one of the many ways that God reveals himself not only as our creator, but also as our holy lawgiver. We learn something essential about worshiping God in verses 4 and 5, don't we? God is to be worshiped in all the ways he has revealed his will. God is to be worshiped in all the ways as he has revealed in his holy will. In our children's ministry, we are going to begin walking through some different curriculums, but one of those is the New City Catechism. In the New City Catechism, which our children and grandchildren, and for some of you, maybe great-grandchildren, will learn from, there's a question in the catechism that says this, how can we glorify God? Answer, we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. From the commandment God gave Adam in the garden to the instructions he gave Moses on the tabernacle and later Solomon and David with the temple to the priestly garments and the animals to be sacrificed down to the specific times of year that these feasts were to be observed, God gave his people boundaries, guidelines. He gave them just decrees to keep them focused on him. These just decrees, these laws, were to be reverently obeyed and feared. God revealed his heart, his character, and his glory through these laws, through these feasts, and through his commandments. Brothers and sisters, do you search the scriptures to find out how God commands you to worship him? When is the last time you search the scriptures and ask the question, God, how do you want to be worshipped? Or even more accurate, how do you command to be worshipped? How much time have we spent this week preparing our hearts to sing with gusto to God? How much of our time have we prepared this week just to assemble together in a reverent and joyful manner? How much time have you spent looking at Psalm 81 this week and meditating on it beforehand to prepare your heart to hear from this God? Brothers and sisters, earlier this week, you received the preaching calendar for up to three and a half, four months. You might say, well, Blake, are you type A? Are you bringing your DC to Fort Smith? Not exactly. I was considered a beach bum around them, so I'm far from it. The purpose of giving you the preaching calendar months in advance is not to show off my organizational skills. It's actually to prepare us to hear from God when we meet each Lord's Day. 
so that you're not clueless and aimless. Know that from Monday morning, tomorrow, you already know I'm in Philippians 2, 1 to 11. It's a done deal. Unless the Lord comes back or takes me with him, that's what I'm preaching on. So if you're looking for something to disciple another believer with, or maybe an unbeliever who's interested in the Bible, just open up the Bible to the next sermon passage for the next week. It will fuel your worship on each Lord's Day. Members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, when we gather together each Lord's Day, we are assembling as the people of God. We are assembling together under the Lordship of Jesus, praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we give God glory and build up his church. Now, as the church of Jesus Christ, we may not be instructed to observe feast days and sound trumpets off. So, Brownie, before you get a little curious about, hey, you know, the trumpets last week, we're going to refrain from trumpets probably any time under my ministry. But, but we are instructants instructed as recipients of a new and better covenant mediated through Jesus Christ to sing. We are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, Ephesians 5, verse 19. We are instructed to give thanks to God with lips of praise and, listen, to give thanks to God by showing that through our generous hearts when we share with others what God has given to us. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16 says, these are sacrifices that please God. And when we gather together each Lord's Day and we sit under the word of God, we are called upon to wait upon his word expectantly and eagerly to hear the voice of our good shepherd. This is true worship. Brothers and sisters, when God's people listen carefully to God's word, they are equipped to worship God in spirit and truth. Let me say that again. When God's people listen carefully to God's word, they are equipped to worship God in spirit and truth. James Montgomery Boyce was the senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 to the year he died in 2000. And he once commented on the disappointing things that he saw when he was given opportunities to preach at churches around the country. Listen to what he observed and what he witnessed in many churches. Quote, When I travel around the country and speak in so-called evangelical churches, the thing that strikes me the most is how little awareness of the presence of God there seems to be, even on a Sunday morning. The services are relevant in the sense that they deal with supposed human needs. They are lively, often entertaining, like the worship described at the beginning of this psalm, Psalm 81. They are often loud, joyful, and boosted by musical instruments. But there is almost no serious mention of God. The hymns are increasingly man-centered, dealing with who we are rather than who he is. And there are almost no prayers. To judge from what I hear, Christianity has become a form of Sunday entertainment, a political pressure group, or a 12-step recovery process 
rather than a community of those who know and are learning to obey God. Brothers and sisters, when there is little mention of the glory of God in our singing and in our prayers, and there is little mention of God's grace revealed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that leaves our churches thin and powerless. You see, we as Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church don't have it together. We are just one poor trajectory from being another thin or powerless church. Every day, every week, every time we can get together and pray, we should be praying that we would be a God in awe church. We should be praying to grow deep in our theology that manifests itself in highest praise and doxology. People can't worship this God if they don't know him. Beloved, pray that I, as your lead pastor, would lead in this and present to you not a great preacher or a great building, but a great God. Pray for me, pray for us that we do that. In verses 6 and 7, we read how Israel was confronted by their God by being reminded of his gracious and powerful deliverance when they were in bondage and distress. And notice how much of the attention, again, is on God and how great he is rather than on Israel and how great they were. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Israel had been saved from their enemy in Egypt. Israel had been rescued from their harsh slavery. Israel was then tested in the wilderness. That's what that phrase there in verse 7, the waters of Meribah, that's what it's referring to, when their grumbling and unbelief was exposed and then God provided for them again. But Israel, beloved, was freed. They were saved to ultimately worship. They were made free to serve their God, enjoy their God, obey their God, and worship. Beloved, do you know that every human being on the planet is a worshiper? The question is not, are you a worshiper? The question is, what God do you serve? Is it the God of Scripture? Revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? You see, beloved, as God's people, we gather each week to celebrate our salvation from God as well. God has granted us through his son, Jesus Christ, victory made us more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid that sin debt in full. He has conquered the grave. He has defanged Satan's power over our life. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you're wondering, how can I be saved from myself? The good news is that God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that always brought glory 
to his heavenly Father in word, in thought, and in deed. When God spoke, Jesus listened and obeyed perfectly. Obeying his Father was the very food of his life, John 4 tells us. His death on the cross for our sins was the ultimate sacrifice that the feast of Israel were pointing to. And his resurrection from the dead as the God-man fulfilled the promise of the Messiah that he would come, that he would conquer, and that he would save. And it's now through repenting of your sins, putting your faith in Christ, that Jesus becomes your strength. Jesus becomes your joy. Jesus becomes your life. And the joy we experience now on earth is made possible through the Holy Spirit he sends to dwell within us. Brothers and sisters, celebrate with joy the God of our salvation. Israel was instructed to worship God with joy and reverence in all the ways he commanded them because of their great deliverance out of Egypt. But did Israel listen to God? Did Israel believe God at his word and keep him as number one in their life? Maybe you're sitting here today and you're wondering, are there any consequences for not listening to God? This leads to point number two, listen by faith to the God of your salvation. Listen by faith to the God of your salvation. In verses 8, 11, and 13, it appears that God's people, at least a portion of them, would not listen to him. Notice what the Lord says, verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Verse 13. O that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. This is the million-dollar question. Why would they not listen to God? Had God been unfaithful to them? Had God not provided for them? Had God not been their strength and their joy and their song in ages past? Well, we aren't told explicitly why they didn't listen to God except for one verse begins to unveil the curtain, if you will, the spiritual surgery of what their core problem was. Their problem was idolatry. Somewhere along the way, Yahweh, Jehovah, was no longer number one. Look with me at verses 9 to 10a. The Lord says, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
If you know your Bibles well, or at least you know Exodus 20 well, what is this almost a verbatim quote from? The Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What is idolatry? This should pop up on the screen. This is my kind of easy summary of the Bible's teaching on idolatry. Idolatry can be anything we put in the place of God for our trust, identity, and our source of eternal hope and salvation. An idol can also be anything that so occupies our time and attention to cause us to sin or hinder us from a closer relationship to God. Now for Israel, if you look through the Old Testament, they didn't have just one false god they were deceived into. I mean, they worshipped Baal. They worshipped astrology. They even relied on foreign nations to be their strength. But for us today, idols can take on a whole sorts of colors in our life, can't they? Over the past several years, I've spent many hours in counseling. And as a local church pastor and as a Christian, I think the top three things that I have seen as idols of people's lives in the church are these. Number one, idol number one, chasing hobbies, careers, money, and even marriage at the neglect of Christian fellowship and corporate worship in the local church. You might say, how is that an idol? You're worshiping the God of this world. You're worshiping things that you can touch and feel and smell. And John tells us in 1 John 2, they're passing away. Can you get a good job? Can you get married? Can you have money? Yes, 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 but not at the neglect of what is most important in your life. Idol number two, addiction to social media and pornography. And idol number three, churches esteeming the traditions of men over and above the teachings of Holy Scripture. Without realizing it, any one of these things can become our own little pet God, can't they? Pursuing success and simply being busy in life can easily begin to replace discipleship and spiritual accountability in our lives. But didn't Jesus warn us in the parable of the sower in Mark 4? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things can creep in and what? Choke the word. The word, the only thing that can save our souls. If we're not careful and deliberate how we use it, silly things like social media can become an idle factory for self-absorption frivolous arguments, and wasting precious time. John Piper once said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Obviously, going several steps further, pornography can become an enslaving fantasy world that leads people to deeper and darker 
despair. Pornography and sexual sin like it has laid many a men and many a women low and useless for gospel good. Not to mention the degradation of how people view men and women and how it ruins their closest relationships. Fantasizing about what isn't true or virtuous or praiseworthy can certainly be an idol in our lives and things like media and pornography can certainly be prevalent to do that even in the lives of those inside the church. And then left unchecked, churches can go down a slippery slope real quick by allowing traditions to speak louder in its members' ears than the teaching of God's word. You see, traditions are not all bad. Traditions are good when churches look to them as helpful guides and faithfully applying God's word. But traditions become bad when churches lean on them and subtly replace God's word with them. Instead of hearing, thus says the Lord, or the scriptures tell us, you hear things more frequently in church and in leadership meetings like, that's not how we've always done it. Instead of gathering for worship to please the Lord, churches are more concerned about how many visitors they can attract or how many people they can keep comfortable. Beloved, all the things that I just mentioned are just a sample of idolatry. I like how one theologian puts it with traditions. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, while traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Think about that one for a while. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord has convicted you this morning, if the Lord has convicted you this week of idols that have crept up in your hearts, that's a good thing. It's raw to have God reveal things in your heart that you know you have put before him. But it's a good thing. Conviction is the first step towards deliverance. It's the first step towards growth. It's the first step towards joy in the Lord. You see, our God will not share his glory with any other. If you are in Christ, he will seek you like a good father does a wayward child, and he will smash your idols into dust. And it'll be painful, and it'll hurt, and you'll wonder, does God even love me? And the longer you follow him, the more you'll see that that is his proof that he does. As Christians, we can't be fighting this Christian life by ourselves, can we? If we are all prone to idols in our life, our hearts gravitate towards them, we can't defeat this on our own. That's why it's a good and necessary thing for every Christian to belong to a local church. And you might say, well, what does it mean to be a member? Is it just a name on a roll? Well, for some churches it might be. But at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, we hope to be a church that if you join this congregation, you are welcoming other Christians into your life to fight for your joy and to fight against your sin. The one overarching job description that Jesus has given me is to feed my sheep and to be against their sin for their joy. Pray that I have courage to do it. 
pray that you would have courage to love me when I'm out of step as well. We are all prone to idols. Does not this teach? Don't we see this in the word of God? Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Sin is a dangerous thing. Because sin gone unconfessed, as Brother Allen led us in Romans 1, and unrepented of, eventually leads to greater spiritual deafness and spiritual darkness. That's what happened multiple times in Israel's history, both in the wilderness, but also in their times of judges and exile. God's judgment for those who remain in unbelief and they remain in rebellion to God, those who continue to plug their ears from hearing God's word, Judgment sometimes may come from divine abandonment. Look at what God said he did to rebellious Israel who refused to listen to him. This is probably the most chilling verse of all of Psalm 81. Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. You see, God's judgment throughout history has come in different ways. He flooded the earth in Genesis 6 to 9. He struck people down dead. And he has sent people off into exile under a pagan king. But did you know that the God we worship this morning sometimes brings judgment on a people? by literally giving them over to their sinful hearts, he stops restraining them. He stops warning them. Notice again what verse 12 says, so I gave them over. If you're someone who likes to study the original languages, the phrase literally means God sent them away. In Genesis chapter 3 in the beginning, with Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, what did God do towards the end of Genesis 3? It says in Genesis 3, 23, that he sent the man out of the garden. It's the picture of a rebellious and stubborn dog that you cease from spanking, cease from warning, cease from pulling that dog back on a leash and say, fine, take off the leash and run into the wild and you'll never come back. That's the picture here. It's God pulling back and say, you don't want me, you don't listen to me, you do not repent and trust me, I'm going to give you exactly what you want and that's a life without me. Brothers and sisters, that has got to be one of the scariest realities that you and I will ever encounter in this life. Children, if your mom and dad discipline you 
and instruct you and pray for you and warn you and protect you. They are seeking to be like God by showing you that boundaries and order is a sign of their love for you. A mom or dad that spares the rod and cares nothing for their children will passively neglect their children. One of the scariest acts of judgment that God could ever bring upon a people, a nation, even a so-called church, is letting that church think they're okay with God, and they're not. One commentator said the Lord's punishment is to confirm upon the sinner what he has chosen for himself. Earlier in the service, Brother Allen read Romans chapter 1, another daunting passage, right? Did you notice what happens when sinners continue to reject God's word, continue to plug their ear from truth, continue to suppress it, reject it? Eventually, God will remove the light from your life and give you over. I think looking at the depravity of our own country and the unhealth of so many churches should all make us cry out for mercy. I think 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 4, should be a reminder to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church that we're not off the hook either. As Brother Tom read last week during the pastoral vows that I made to you, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That means God gives them over. He gives them false teachers. He gives them false prophets and says, you want to have your cake and eat it too? Then I'm removing the lampstand and you're no longer one of my churches. Verse 4, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That means there's only so many warnings God gives sinners in this life. Even if you live a long life, God will probably have given you more light than three-fourths of the world will have ever had. Pray that I stay faithful as your pastor to tell you what you need to hear, not merely what you want to hear. And pray that we as a congregation would continue to have ears to hear while we are given the light. God is just, and God is also compassionate and kind, isn't he? God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone, Ezekiel 18.32. And whether you realize it or not, his warnings to us are his sirens going off saying, I love you. And his discipline, his painful but necessary discipline is his proof that he loves you. Read Hebrews chapter 12 sometime to think more about that. And if you're here today and you know the Lord is continuing to warn you about some poor choices that you've made or poor choices that you're contemplating, listen to him. That faithful mom, that faithful dad, that faithful pastor, that faithful friend that keeps warning you, don't go down that path. 
That's God's sign that he loves you. Listen. He's got your greatest good in mind. The benefits of listening to God far outweigh the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Lord reminded Israel, look at verses 14 to 16. I would soon subdue their enemies. This is what would happen if they obeyed and turned my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Here, this is the psalmist calling the people back to covenantal faithfulness. The Lord promised under the old covenant that he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land they would conquer from their enemies, and a land that God would be their God, and his blessings would shower upon them in abundance. But sin is always irrational, isn't it? At the time, sin always feels good and it seems right, but in retrospect, sin always looks ridiculous, doesn't it? Just take an inventory, a rearview mirror of the last 20 years of your life, and think about the sins you've committed, and then realize at the time it sounded good, and now it looks ridiculous. Why would any of us... than we really are, and leaves us worse off than we would ever want for ourselves. Sin can make us miss some of the greatest blessings God has for us in this life and make us walk away empty-handed into further darkness. When Jesus began teaching openly in his ministry and the crowds began flocking to him, Jesus' words were both offensive but life-giving to the crowds. Like we read in Psalm 81, there were some who responded to Jesus in unbelief, and there were some who responded by listening with faith to his word. We read in John 6, verses 63 to 69, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. The very words of life. To trust in God and all that he promises us through Christ, is to experience the fullness of joy and the fullness of strength that Psalm 81 speaks about. For Jesus, or for many, Jesus was an unlikely Savior at first glance. 
The Jews grumbled, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? But just like Israel, walking in the wilderness, they began to grumble when they did not see how God could provide for them. God would not be their God against their greatest enemies. Jesus was cast off as well as an unlikely Savior. And yet, Jesus reveals himself to all of those that the Father gives to him, and they come to him. They don't look at Jesus as an accident. Jesus as just a prophet, but they see Jesus as the bread of life, the very gift of God for eternal life. In John 7, verses 37 and 38, I want you to notice something Jesus said on a particular day. It says in John 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast. What feast is he referring to? In John 7, he's speaking about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the feast that Psalm 81 is most likely alluding to. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But maybe you're here today and you're struggling with a particular sin that you feel somewhat ensnared by, ashamed by. Maybe it's an idol that is just beating you down. And you're struggling to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. To really believe that following God through Jesus Christ, the benefits outweigh the fleeting pleasures of sin. You're struggling. Is it really better? If that's you, I want you to look back at Psalm 81 one more time. Look at verse 10. This is one of those uh, refrigerator magnet verses, if you will. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes in the faith, once said this, God had proved his power and his goodwill. It remained only for his people to believe in him and ask large things of him. If their expectations were enlarged to the utmost degree, they could not exceed the bounty of the Lord. Little birds in the nest opened their mouths widely enough, and perhaps the parent birds failed to fill them. But it will never be so with our God. His treasures of grace are inexhaustible. Open your mouth wide and call upon this God in prayer. Ask big things of this big God. Ask good things and he will give you excellent things. Ask many things and he will give you not merely what you thought you needed, but he will give you what eternally you see that you needed. Celebrate with joy in the God of your salvation. And listen by faith to the God of your salvation. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we come before you now and pray that the seed of your word fell upon good soil. Lord, I pray that if there are any in here who are addicted or enslaved to a particular sin, or they've lost their joy in you because the cares of this life have weighed them down, Lord, I pray you would deliver them and bring them joy by turning their eyes to you again. And Father, I do pray that Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church would take heed both of the comforts and the warnings of Psalm 81. Father, I pray that we would be a church that listens to your word by faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.